This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Images of children caught in the recent chemical weapons attack in Syria led to international outrage. One Colorado physician has seen the effects of such attacks up close. Dr. Vic Babarda has served in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Jordan, and he has treated troops exposed to chemical weapons. He's now at the CU School of Medicine researching an antidote, and his team is making real progress. Lieutenant Colonel, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here. What went through your mind when you first heard about civilians and the chemical weapons attack in Syria? It's a very tough scene. I've taken care of many patients who've uh, had harm from chemicals over the years. And seeing that again in Syria was difficult, especially the children and how they did not have the treatments there available, likely, and how many were injured. What does it mean not to have the available treatments? Uh, What are those treatments today? So there's many types of chemicals that are out there that um, terrorists use, uh, domestic and international. The ones that it seemed that they had used were sarin, which is a nerve agent, and some chlorine potentially as well. And there are antidotes for sarin, the nerve gas. There are none for chlorine. And having taken care of many chlorine victims, um, it's a problem. What are some of the uh, effects of exposure? So depending on the type of chemical that they're exposed to, it can vary. So we work a lot on cyanide, which is a very common and high threat for the United States. And that can cause uh, seizures. It can cause people to stop breathing and, and, and cause them to die. As you saw with some of the videos for sarin, that can cause uh, foaming at the mouth, uh, difficulty breathing, um, and seizures as well, and even some burns from chlorine. If you survive, I suppose. That's if you survive. That's correct. If you survive. And chemicals work very quickly. One of the issues with chemical agents when they're used, either accidental from a train crash or intentional, is that the chemicals bind the body very quickly. So the antidotes must be given early. And if they're not, they can get sick and sometimes it's irreversible by the time they reach the hospital. Okay, so you are really focusing on cyanide. You say that's of particular interest to the United States. Can you say more about that? Sure. We are working uh, against developing antidotes to cyanide. Cyanide is an easily found chemical. Actually, it's found here in Colorado in many industries in metal extraction. And a small amount is very lethal. And it can be inhaled, ingested, injected. Um, It's similar to other agents like sodium azide or hydrogen sulfide found in fracking sites. Um, And it's very toxic. And there are antidotes available, but they're only given through the vein intravenously, which is very difficult to give for many patients. Why? It's a technical skill uh, that's hard to do. And when you have 30, 40 patients, or in case of Syria, 150 patients or so, it's very difficult to give that and place that IV securely. So better routes of administration like inhaled, injected to the muscle, like epinephrine or even ingested, are much easier to give for bystanders or first responders. And that's where you're focusing your efforts with help from the National Institutes of Health and I think some Pentagon funding as well. That's correct. That's exactly where we're focusing uh, with NIH, National Institutes of Health, as well as the Army to develop those. And cyanide would be used potentially, what, by a terrorist actor or a state actor? What's the fear? The the fear is both. Um, It's an easily available chemical, that, uh, chlorine, hydrogen sulfide, Um, So there's two types of of chemicals. One is those that that are known chemicals, easy to obtain, and it's a risk to to the United States. Uh, There have been foil attempts in Europe, including here in in, in the United States, and one potential one many years ago in Colorado. 
There's other ones that are mustard gas or sarin, which are a bit harder to manufacture and weaponize, but that's what they're doing in Syria. Okay. When you have seen this in in the field, uh, because you are in the military, it has been a function both of soldiers attacked by chemical weapons, and then I guess soldiers exposed by trying to defuse chemical weapons. That's another aspect of the risk here, which is if you are in the field trying to get rid of these things, you're at risk. That, that's absolutely correct. Um, we took care of many, many soldiers and um, locals who were injured from these chlorine attacks in Iraq, for example, hundreds of them who had severe injuries. In addition, we have troops trained um, in the EOD who are trained specifically to defuse those bombs. And some of those bombs, those IEDs, as they were called, had sulfur mustard on them, and they had injuries from the skin, and we took care of those uh, as well. EOD, I'm sorry. Uh, It's the, uh, I don't speak all the Army language, (laughs) but uh, those are special uh, troops that are trained to uh, defuse those bombs. Hurt Locker was the movie that actually talked about them in detail. Oh, yes. We're speaking with Dr. Vic Babarda. He's at the CU School of Medicine and uh, is also in the military. And he and his team are researching antidotes to uh, some chemical weapons. How close are you and what are the obstacles? So we are uh, very close. We're working uh, with uh, these drugs to get them available in the hands of patients. And the way we've looked at it and the way our approach has been is really getting molecules all the way to market. So just not doing science for science sake, but really moving it from the science bench to the bedside to the bystanders and first responders. And so we hope to get these drugs through the FDA. And some of the obstacles are making sure they're really safe, uh, which the FDA requires, and that they're effective, which they also require as well. And who would have them on standby? The military, hospitals, would you hope to disseminate these around the globe? The answer is yes to all three. Okay. So in our role now, I work at CU School of Medicine, and our objective is to get these into the hands of the Arapaho sheriffs or the Denver Health Medics or Aurora Firemen. And we also work with the military with the same intent, to get it into the combat medics' hands to use. And, of course, the technology that we put into this could get it into folks in Syria and other locations where they need it. Will it be cheap? That's one of the goals, uh, because to get these across internationally and to get them in big strategic stockpiles, they need to be affordable so they can be used and really safe and easy to use. Ease of use is, is key. Right. You talked about inhalable. You talked about uh, injectable, but but I guess intramuscularly as opposed to intravenously. Intramuscularly. Absolutely. So folks who have allergic reactions right now can get auto-injectors for epinephrine to save your life. Yeah. There's no reason why we can't do that with antidotes. And we have those for some, but not for all and not for cyanide, for example. So are there... Uh, chemicals that you are like really far behind on developing an antidote to? That is, is it something of an arms race between, you know, terrorist actors or nation actors who would use chemical weapons and um, those developing antidotes to them? Absolutely. Yeah, there's many, uh, as these terrorists evolve, and a good example was when they developed bombings in Iraq, they moved those to Afghanistan, they increased technology, so we were always trying to keep up with them. The same thing with chemicals. They get more ingenious of ways to deliver them or, or uh, spread them or, or uh, have folks ingest them. When they, when they went to Osama bin Laden's house, they actually found, this is public information, information that they had planned to use cyanide orally in water and food supplies. That's right. I remember those stories. And we don't have a good solution for that, oral cyanide. It's a massive dose of cyanide. And so now we are working on ways to figure that out as well. 
What are most often the modes of delivery for chemical weapons attacks? So both in uh, intentional chemical weapon attacks as well as accidents, buildings that blow up or trains that crash, a lot of the gases are inhaled. Some of them are ingested as well. And some uh, land on the skin and cause burn and injury like we saw in Syria the last couple of years from mustard gas. Are you haunted by the images you've seen? Well, it is absolutely difficult to see uh, patients, young and old, uh, active duty and civilian, to have these injuries. Now, as a combat physician and as an emergency physician, we see a lot of injuries that would haunt most. But our job is to really do the best we can to take care of those patients. Um, It is no doubt difficult to see these young kids be injured from that. And would these antidotes mean that if administered quickly, no one would die or it would just be that there were there are fewer deaths. What's the scale here? So it, these antidotes in general, the goal is to reduce the death significantly. And so if you're very close, for example, the folks we saw with the chlorine, these big trucks would be blown up. If you're very close, often we can't do anything to save you. But if you're further If you're very away, close to the scene. Yes. Uh-huh. If you're very close to the bombing, um, you may not uh, survive no matter what we do. But for the other majority... 70, 80, 90 percent, we can save with treatments uh, for that. Even accidents from trains and buildings, we can do the same. All right. What's the timeline here, do you think? Uh, We hope to get these antidotes out into uh, the FDA to evaluate within a couple of years. And there's many steps uh, along the way to be sure that drug is safe and effective. And so the timeline is a little longer, but it's not 10 years. It's within a few years. And I can't imagine that we're the only nation working on this. Absolutely not. We have partners across the world. We have partners across at CU campus that we work with, for sure. We believe in synergism and collaboration, as well as the United States and University of California and other places in Boston and and Israel and in Europe. Absolutely, because they have the same risk, especially Israel has the same risk, if not much, much greater than we do for these chemical attacks. Thank you. Which, by the way, are often outside of international law. I mean, these violate any number of conventions, the use of these. They absolutely do. And they are against international law. And the United Nations has a Remembrance Day for chemical victims on October, or excuse me, April 29th, which discusses that specifically, remembers those that were injured because it is against international law to use these. I see. So coming up this month. Yes. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Dr. Vic Bavarda is a military doctor who has treated soldiers exposed to chemical weapons. He's now at the CU School of Medicine, as we've been discussing researching an antidote. Your comments about our show go from my inbox onto the air in our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear. So a fact I state regularly in my conversations with Governor John Hickenlooper caught his attention this month and yours as well. Here's the interaction. We're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Democratic Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. How come you guys always have to say Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper? Why don't you say Governor Hickenlooper? Why, why do you want to inject partisanship into what is really just a, a normal question and answer session? 
Bonnie Beach of Montrose agrees with the governor, emailing, There's absolutely no reason to identify him as the Democratic governor of our state, except to increase thinking about partisanship. You guys can do better. Peggy St. Clair of Parker adds that I, quote, could just as easily have said white middle-aged Governor Hickenlooper. She goes on, I would love it if Mr. Hickenlooper was solely identified as governor. He is the governor of the whole state, and I think he does an admirable job of weighing his decisions and acting in the best interest of the state, not what is good for the Democrats of Colorado. But Peggy Carey of Montrose sees it differently. Quote, Someone needs to inform Governor Hickenlooper, the Democrat from Colorado, that AP rules of journalism require identifying elected officials by their affiliation. Also, she writes, Take some Xanax, Gov. You're a little testy. Carey points to the same source I rely on, the AP Style Guide, which actually leaves some room for a reporter's discretion. It says elected officials are to be identified by their party when it's relevant to the story. And so if I'd been covering the governor as he read to children, calling him a Democrat would have been out of place. But we were talking policy. There are a few more reasons I stand by this decision, in this case and in other conversations with elected officials. Their parties appear on the ballot. Their affiliation affects the tally when a bill is voted on. And we have a lot of new people moving to Colorado who may not know the political landscape. So we are on the side of more information, not less. Finally, this particular interview included a deep discussion of the future of the Democratic Party. It's important listeners know Hickenlooper is commenting as someone in that party and not as an outsider. Last week, I spoke with State Senator Owen Hill, Republican from El Paso County. He co-sponsored a bill to regulate driverless cars, which he believes is the state's job. During debate, his Senate colleague Steve Fenberg, a Boulder Democrat, expressed concern that local governments could be hamstrung if power rests solely with the state. We put that concern to Senator Hill. Yeah, you know, uh, some people think out loud when they make statements in the Senate. Um, oh, my. Right. Okay. As, as I say, these are already laws here. I mean, it just it, it shows the importance of diving into the specific subject matter uh, expertise. Well, listener Christopher Jackson of Denver tweeted, Anyone else catch Owen Hill's snarky comment on Colorado Matters? And there was this from Natalie Lopez of Boulder. Senator Fenberg brought up a point that was really critical to the state of Colorado, which is, The governance of municipalities is beginning to be undermined. Autonomous cars is one point, but the more specific point that we are really struggling with here in Boulder County is that the governor has decided that the state has all regulations over fracking, which means that if somebody chooses to ignore the safety of the residents of a specific county, that there is nothing to be done at our local level to regulate it. So I would say that Senator Owen's comment has an undercurrent that is actually more critical to pay attention to than what was at the surface. Finally, in loud and clear, an apology if I gave a bit too much of the plot away in a conversation about a play at Curious Theatre Company in Denver. I used the word spoiler alert, but really didn't give listeners enough time to turn off the radio. Spike Evans emailed, I'm still going to see the show, but this did put a bit of a damper on things. He added, in the sixth sense, Bruce Willis's character is dead the whole time. Ha! Gotcha. Now we're even. Just don't tell me how Titanic ends, Spike. Keep the feedback coming through CPRnews.org. On Facebook, we are CPR News. Or Twitter, the show is at Colorado Matters, and I'm at 
CPR Warner. Romeo and Juliet gets a fresh interpretation from Cleo Parker Robinson Dance in Denver. The show pits Christians against followers of voodoo. Company dancer Chloe Abel says the role of Juliet comes with a lot of responsibility. Because it is a ballet or a story that everyone knows, so it's kind of heavy to carry. But it's also really exciting because Cleo is taking it and putting a whole new twist to the ballet with the Capulets being voodoo and the Montagues being Catholic. The story is set in New Orleans. And uh, Cleo Parker Robinson, welcome back to the program. It's so wonderful to be here. How exciting. I'll say that uh, the company first performed your rendition of Romeo and Juliet with the Colorado Symphony back in 2012. Uh, So this is um, something of a revisiting for you. What led you down the path of incorporating a religion born in West Africa into this ballet? Well, you know, I've um, I've been very uh, inspired by religions of all over the world, but I I really uh, spent time with Catherine Dunham. She was my inspiration to really bring that sense of um, voodoo and what that is. Uh, I studied with her for a long time in East St. Louis. This is the modern dance choreographer. She's she was a mambo. I mean, everybody knew her as the first cultural anthropologist in our country and a and a movie star. I mean, she was in Stormy Weather and all those things. But when you say she was a mambo, everybody gets really silent. (laughs) It's really funny. They get like, so all of these kind of stereotypes go up in their head immediately. I mean, a mambo being a priestess. Yeah, she's a priestess. So so a a priestess of uh, the Voondoon. And so um, uh, she did a a wonderful film long ago um, called Haiti. Um, and it's the religions of Haiti. And, and there she is explaining, you know, really what it is uh, to have those ceremonies. So when I studied with her, we studied dance. But she would bring in from politics to culture to um, anything and everything. I mean, you, in that dance class, you do a tergite and a contraction and whatever, a yambalu. And all of a sudden you go, yambalu, what is that? Then she'd take you right to the culture. And then the Yambalu is the Dambala. Dambala is the snake um, deity. And the movement that comes out of Dambala is the Yambalu. So it, you thought you were studying dance, and all of a sudden you were into all different kinds of cultures. Yes, the, vo- the vocabulary is flying here <laughs> like dancers in the air. Uh, I think that, that maybe before we proceed, you could tell us just a bit more about what I know as voodoo, you've used the term voodoon. Um, this was a religion born in West Africa that made it, uh, of course, to Haiti and to the United States. Um, I think a lot of people just picture this as uh, a religion of voodoo dolls, right? Yeah, and and of pins. And there's of there's course. so much going on yeah. here. And that's really what you're trying to convey yeah. in Romeo yeah. and Juliet. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I took a different approach in terms of it just being a different spirituality. And I, I, you know, getting away from the stereotype of of that. I mean, I came out of New Orleans just a few days ago, and I I remember going to one of the shops, and they really didn't have those voodoo dolls. Uh-huh. And I, I just fell out. I went, oh, my God, this is crazy. But that's how it's been, you know, kind of um, 
commercialized. And so I think because it has, I think it's so important to do a work like this so that people can look at how the religions are very similar. I mean, in Brazil, you know, that the Bundun uh, or the the Candomblé, which is very much like Santeria, they're all very similar. Um, and it's interesting, in, in Brazil, you have them living alongside oh, yeah. Catholicism. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's the inherent tension in this version of Romeo and Juliet. Exactly. Is the, the, the faith we've been speaking about. About, and then the Catholic faith. You do work in some deities, don't yes. you? Yes. Oh, yeah. We have several deities. We start with um, the the goddess of the earth, of course. And and, um, and so she's sort of a mixed god. I mean, Gaia or Ane. And um, she's the earth god because we really start in the cemetery after their death. And so it's pretty, it's pretty powerful to be able to take this wonderful Shakespeare and Prokofiev is just the music is phenomenal, oh, you yes. know, and the music is so great. But to bring this other element of Yemaya, who is the goddess of the sea, and that, that she really is the one that loved, I mean, this is who, um, Juliet worships is, is her goddess. Her deity is Yemaya, and um, it's it's extraordinary how we we bring all of those deities into the whole story of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, another deity is Allegma. She yeah. plays a particularly important part when Romeo kills Juliet's cousin Tybalt. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Allegma, because she is the goddess of the crossroads. And for all of us, we many times realize we're in a crossroad and we have many choices. But when you do something like murder, you do something that is so outrageous, you don't have many choices then. And Allegma shares that with, um, you know, Romeo, that the choices are few then. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, Cleo Parker Robinson, the choreographer, is back on the program today. We're talking about the remounting of her take on Romeo and Juliet. So religion indeed creates large divides between these two families in your version. How do Romeo and Juliet view their different religions themselves, though? Because obviously they have different views yes, than their exactly, families. Exactly. I think the thing with, um, you know, I mean, it's a love story, and 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 that's the critical thing. That, and I think that's the the, the most important thing. That even their families being so so definitely traditional in their own uh, religious practices, they they don't let that stop them, even though it's taboo. They Do they find common ground? Like, do they find reasons oh, yeah, that yeah. Catholicism and Vundun yeah. might share something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that what happens is that, um, and I don't want to give it all away, yes, however. Um, we've we've um, been doing that apparently <laughs> a little too much on the show recently. But I think it's because it is such a... A different approach. I'd like to bring the the audience in to peek at some of the magic of what takes place. But I do think that um, Romeo is intrigued by this new religion for him, and yet it's so similar to what he does. And he's intrigued, and he's trying to understand it. He comes into a sacred ceremony and watches, and then tries to, even in it being taboo for his family, he is open to discover what it is because he wants to know more about Juliet. And I think that's the most important part of what takes place. You talked about the score by Prokofiev. 
uh, have you integrated other sounds oh, to yes. reflect the diversity of this Romeo and Juliet? Well, you know, when I did it with the symphony, it was so extraordinary to have Andrew Lytton uh, conduct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was Nureyev's pianist. So he said, I've never worked with dancers except for Nureyev, and I thought I'd have a heart attack. But, <laughs> but anyway, I think after studying um, that tape... And sharing it with, you know, wonderful musicians. I mean, uh, the Denver Brass. I, I remember talking to um, many of the musicians and um, they'd say, you know, it's so wonderful, but if it's New Orleans, we need that brass sound. Mm. And then I worked with Jodell Charles, who is really recomposing. He's overlaying a composition over the Prokofiev, which is fabulous. So finding chance that really represent the Yoruba tradition with the New Orleans sound will go over the Prokofiev. And um, we're just thrilled to be able to honor all of it at the same time, to be in many places at one time. Yoruba, another term for the the West African people from from which this originated, this faith. Uh, aren't these things sacred, Cleo Parker Robinson, Shakespeare, and Prokofiev? Aren't, aren't they good enough on their own? <laughs> they are, but they belong to all of us. Mm. And I think that's what's exciting. And, and what's wonderful also is that, um, we, it's like food. I mean, it, it's really like New Orleans. You can come there and you have all of these cultures that are all, they have all of their traditions, but when they come together, you have a different kind of spice that takes place. And I think that that's valid. I want to say that you come from a mixed-race family. Your father was African-American, your mother was white. And in previous interviews with me, you've talked about how taboo that was as you were growing up and how it exposed you at a young age to real divisiveness. Yes. It makes me think that you had your own version, in a way, of Romeo and Juliet and and two people in your life coming together that many thought shouldn't. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think this... I'm doing both Romeo and Juliet and Porgy and Bess in the same program, which is outrageous. Oh, wow. You know, so we're bringing in those elements of, you know, Prokofiev and Gershwin. But my own, my own story is, you know, having race being such a dividing force, but knowing that love conquers all. And I think that that's the theme is that I've been able to live it and experience it and, and, um, exude it. That love really is the most powerful thing, even beyond death. It's really something. You know, I think that I hear that love conquers all, and I think, well, it's lovely, and it's, but it might be a bit pat. Do you, do you think that that's true? Does love always conquer all? Not always, but when it does, it's so profound. And I think that that's what we want to do in this work is bring a sense of hope because I think one of the the real the realities in the work is that it it is a tragedy. I mean, this is Shakespeare's tragedy. Right. In a way, death prevails more than love. (laughs) Yeah. Death is present always. Mm. I mean, you, you can't avoid death, but you can choose love. Before we go, why remount this now? Is there something about our time that you think this version of Romeo and Juliet speaks to or needs spoken to? <laughs> well, I absolutely. I mean, this is even before the election. that <laughs> I think that I chose to do these works. But I think it was also because I think many of our audiences for Cleo Parker Robinson Dance, even though we're 47 years old now, have not seen our collaborations with classical music. 
They've seen maybe what we've done with jazz or modern work or gospel, but they haven't seen us in the classical reign, and they haven't seen us translated in, in, in lots of different cultural perspectives. So I think that's what was number one. But number two, I do think that it's critical that we have art that deals with social issues. And I think a lot of people have no way to enter that kind of discussion without being really passionate but divided. So I think passion and unity is more important than passion and division. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> Thank you. Denver choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson. Her dance company opens Romeo and Juliet next weekend. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I had some time to kill before dinner the other night, and so I walked around a little bit. This was a neighborhood in Denver called Alamo Placida. It's an upper-middle-class neighborhood. And I saw a bunch of what are called little free libraries in front of houses. They look like birdhouses, but there are books inside. You can take one, leave one. Turns out Denver is a real hot spot for them. The man who helped start little free libraries, Todd Bowl, is in town to name Denver a city of distinction— and a welcome to the program. Hello, thank you very much. How did the idea of little free libraries come to you? Um, it, well, it was just a uh, when my mother passed. You know, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't pray enough when she was dying. I couldn't cry enough. I couldn't scream enough. And so, at her funeral, I gave away a little necklace that said "June Bowl, a Dancing Spirit, nineteen twenty seven through." And it was based on an old Sioux Indian saying that nobody really ever passes until all they've touched are gone. And so what it was was a dance uh, of my mother to the community. So I put up this uh, little schoolhouse, one-room schoolhouse that uh, uh, kind of mimicked where she taught as a, as a teacher. Right. She was a teacher. Yeah. And then I put in books that she'd that she'd had over the years that she'd passed back and forth with family. And I felt it was kind of a gift to the community to celebrate that spirit of who my mother was. Hmm. So in some ways, do you see each little free library as a version of your mother continuing? Dancing. Dancing. Absolutely. Um, I see each little library as like one of my kids, and I see each one of them as a dance of my mother around the planet. You call people who put up little free libraries stewards, and uh, there are more than 500 of them in Metro Denver, I guess making it one of the most active regions in the country. Absolutely. Denver's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, they've embraced it as art. They've embraced it as community. They've embraced it as uh, ways of giving back to the community, social justice. They've done all kinds of things, and I've watched them for years and we've been absolutely impressed what happens. And uh, we know that the 500 you have today in a couple of years will be 1,000. So we, we feel that it's becoming a part of the fabric of Denver, and that is really exciting to us. A thought crossed my mind as I was walking through that neighborhood that uh, the people who lived there likely had no problem accessing books. You know, there's the public library uh, where I was walking. They were probably well-heeled enough to buy a book if they needed one. Like, what what role do these play? What do you see as the, the mission of little free libraries? Well, uh, I believe, one, that everybody has a right to read and that everybody should read. And, and our long-term goal is in 2035 that we write a book that's entitled We All Read Well Together, The History of the Grassroots Literacy Movement. 
And what we do is write a chapter every year, and Denver is a big part of that chapter. And the idea is that we don't have enough resources really to, you know, make the difference we need to make totally. So neighborhoods step up and help educate and help with literacy of their own community. And do you find that these little free libraries appear in all kinds of neighborhoods, uh, in more upper middle class ones? Like what, what do you know as you look at their distribution? Um, little free library is about 85 percent uh, women. Women mothers are the key drivers of Little Free Library. And what happens is they listen to it on a public radio station like this or read it in the newspaper, and upper-class, higher social economic neighborhoods start. And then what happens is it starts to work its way through the community, starts ending up at the apartment, the trailer home, you know, the schools. And so what happens, it starts out more social economic, higher levels, mm-hmm. and then it works its way throughout the community to all levels. And you've seen that in communities around the world, I guess. Detroit, Cleveland, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Los Angeles, El Paso, Phoenix, New Orleans, on and on. Is it data-driven? Like, are you looking at ways in which data can tell you about where they are and where they need to be? Well, we have a world map. And the world map is somebody uh, signs up with us, gets a, a sign, uh, their specific number, and they go up on the world map and we know where they are. And then you can look at the world map anywhere you are going or traveling and go visit a little free library. We know that they need to be really everywhere. And we find out at higher social economic neighborhoods, it's more about building community and connecting community. Mm. And the lower social economic neighborhoods is more about literacy and building the reading. Um, I opened one little free library, and there is quite the hodgepodge a biography of the late jazz singer Betty Carter, an adventurer's guide to Hawaii. There was a children's picture book. Do these, though, in some way become a final resting place for books that people want to get rid of? Um, uh, what happens is people often um, – they're book lovers, and book lovers tell us all the time that that books are my heart and soul. They define my humanity. They define who I am. I can't live without books. And so they tell us all the time this is a natural extension of who they are. And so the Little Free Library becomes really a part of them. They start out by doing just what you said as a resting ground for the something they want to get rid of. Yeah. And it turns into the most intimate experience in the community because what happens is you're sharing of your heart and who you are. And what happens is people start sharing their best and most important books to reflect themselves to the community. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, I'm joined now by Todd Bowl, who helped start Little Free Libraries. He's in Colorado to recognize the Denver area as a city of distinction. And for those unfamiliar with what these look like, um, they they are kind of schoolhouse-like or birdhouse-like, but really everyone who erects one does it a little differently. What are some of the they don't like wackier designs you've seen. Well, everything from rocket ships to, you know, uh, we see things that are out of old bathtubs. We see them on old microwaves. We see them on docks. Old microwaves? Old microwaves, old refrigerators, <laughs> old computers. You know, people turn almost anything they can imagine into a little free library. What is your favorite story about someone encountering a little free library? Well, probably my favorite story was... Uh, 
uh, I got approached by uh, the former governor, Jim Doyle of Wisconsin. He tapped me on the shoulder. This is where you're from, right? Right, from yeah. Wisconsin. And he said, you know, Todd, he said, I have to tell you, my wife and I love Little Free Libraries. And he said, and I want to tell you what's going on in America. He said, that's not who we are right now. He says, this is not we as Americans. We're not this divisive. We're not this polarized. He said, Little Free Libraries is more about who we are. He said, we reach across the aisle. We reach across the street. We pick each other up. We help each other. We don't care where they're from. We want to make their life better. He said, Little Free Library is more of a reflection of what Americans really are. And so uh, that... uh, that touched me deeply. And one more is that a man came up to me and he said after a presentation, little free libraries, I understand them. It's like air conditioning. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? Yeah, how so? Yeah. And he said, well, when he's a kid, he's 60-something. He, uh, the parents and his grandparents read on the deck or on their porch. They played in the streets with the kids and the sidewalks and, you know, the fields. And then they got air conditioning. They went in the house. They shut the windows. They shut the doors. They turned on the TV. And he said, and it was all downhill from then, and the digital divide began. And he said, but it's been over 50 years, and with Little Free Library, we're talking again. They're they're connecting again with the neighborhood around them. It does strike me as kind of beautifully analog, you know, Little Free Libraries in a digital world. And it's outside, for that matter. Are you a steward? Do you have a Little Free Library in, in front of your home, Todd? Oh, several. I'm the first one. You know, you have the first one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> is that 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 one still standing? Yeah, it's still standing. And oh, I cool. also have the thousandth one that I put to my that is honoring my dad when he passed. And in that one, I have a music box. You open it up, and it plays to dream the impossible dream, which is kind of cool. You're very poetic. I think we're all passionate at heart, and I think that all of us have that. Uh, passion inside that we just want to come out. And one of the things about the Little Free Library, it just is the dance of the community. And you find out how many people are really caring and really caring about their neighbors. Todd Bowl started Little Free Libraries. He's in town to recognize Denver as a city of distinction. He mentioned that map of Little Free Libraries around the world, and we have a link to it at cprnews.org. Rum is a tropical island spirit, right? Well, a distillery in Colorado's mountains is proving that wrong. Montagna Rum Distillers in Crested Butte is making waves in the liquor world. The company was recently honored with a Colorado Export Award. President Karen Hoskin co-founded it with her husband, and she is on the phone with us. Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you. I have to ask, why rum? Why not distill something uh, more associated with the mountains, like whiskey or, I don't know, gin? You know, it's interesting because rum actually has a long history in the mountains, both in Central and South America, as well as in the mountains of Colorado. The miners brought rum from the coasts, from Boston and from San Francisco when they came up to mine long before there was whiskey in these hills. And so rum actually goes further back in Colorado than whiskey does. And was it always sort of brought here as a finished product or is there there's a history of distilling it in the mountains? In Central America, in Guatemala, there's a huge history of distilling up in the mountains. They discovered that if you take rum up to 7,000 feet in the Guatemalan mountains and age it, it actually ages faster and better 
than it does at sea level. And that was really the aha moment for me was, uh, wow, they're making rum in the mountains because altitude is hugely beneficial to the process. And so I wanted to try it out in Crested Butte at 9,000 feet, and it's proven to be true that it's, there's quite a bit of benefit to being at high altitude. Yeah, give me an example of what those benefits are. So our temperatures fluctuate from day to night, 20 to 30 degrees, almost every single day around the, around the year. And so when we put the rum into the barrel, instead of only about you know three to four gallons making it into the wood and the rest staying at the center of the barrel, the rum is moving around and more liquid is getting exposed to the wood, which is really the magic of aging. Mm. And so the more rum we can bring into contact with American white oak or French oak, the more smooth it becomes and the more flavorful. So the temperature changes make it very kinetic inside of that barrel. That's interesting. Um, you know, I often think of rum as something I I drink when I want uh, a cocktail that's really sweet. Uh, are all rums sweet? You know, most of the mass market rums are sweet, um, but the really high-quality, well-made rums tend to not be very sweet. And those haven't been widely available in the U.S. until really the last five or six years. Uh, So people associate rum with sweet cocktails because when you start with a sweet rum and you're a bartender, you're fighting with the sweetness of the spirit. Um, But some of these higher-end rums and the rums we make for sure, are more dry and they have a little more of a traditional bitterness almost. And so bartenders are finding that they can work with that flavor profile and create almost anything in the flavor pantheon uh, from, from dry to cucumber to basil to grapefruit, all kinds of flavors that work with a high-quality rum that isn't so sweetness forward. Oh, goodness, yeah. I wouldn't associate it with grapefruit. Oh, some of our best cocktails on our menu at Montagna are the grapefruit um, with, you know, say a, an infusion. You can infuse the rum with almost anything. Um, and we do it with cucumber and vanilla and uh, coconut and basil and cilantro even. And we do some some wild herbs from the mountains of Colorado as well. So you can, you know, once you start with a really solid, well-aged, smooth rum, you can pair it with almost anything you could pair a vodka with or any other spirit. My guest is Karen Hoskin. She's co-founder of Montagna Rum Distillers. Yes, distilling rum in Crested Butte, Colorado. And I want to note that uh, you are um, exporting this product and, in fact, got from Governor Hickenlooper and the Colorado Department of Agriculture an export award. I understand it's taken about five years, but you sell your rum in uh, an array of European countries. Is is that difficult? Was was that a real obstacle? It was quite an obstacle for a lot of reasons. In Europe, they use only 700 milliliter bottles, where in the U.S. everything goes into a 750. And so we found that the glass that we needed to bottle the rum for the Europe market was made in Europe, and it seemed crazy to fly it across the ocean, bring it to Crested Butte, Colorado, fill it with rum, and ship it back to Europe. So the biggest hurdle was finding partnerships where we could bottle the rum in Europe, send it over in as a bulk proofed, ready-to-bottle spirit, 
and then not have to ship that glass all over the place. And that was really the hurdle that, that paved the way to the right price in Europe and to the partners saying, yes, we want to, we want to play a part here. Who knew 50 little milliliters could be such <laughs> an issue? Yeah. Absolutely. You, you guys have been winning awards and um, really capturing people's attention in the, the liquor world. Are there a, a lot of surprised faces when people find out this is a, a Colorado-made rum? Interestingly, I think because we've been around for nine plus years at this point, we are finding less and less surprise about that. That used to be just the whole dialogue in the early days. Um, Back in 2008, when we started, people would say, this is crazy. What are you thinking? Rum in the mountains. Um, But now it's almost like we've become well known enough and we've had the conversation enough times now that people are starting to say, well, of course, there's this rum from the mountains where the water is exceptional and it's pulled from a well 350 feet down. And, you know, the um, sugar cane is American and it comes from relatively close by. Um, they've started to really understand that we're not just making this up as a marketing story, that it really truly is beneficial to the final flavor of the rum. What is the closest sugar cane, just out of curiosity? We bring ours from family farmers in Louisiana, um, who we are very connected to. Uh, They grow for us, they mill for us, and they ship directly to us. So it never goes into the commodity market. Uh, It never gets refined. It's a very raw, natural sugar cane uh, that we bring directly to us. And so in most countries that are making commercial rum, they bring their sugarcane from as far as Brazil and Paraguay and Uruguay and in some cases Fiji and India. And so we're actually quite a bit closer to our rum supply than many distilleries that make rum that you've heard of. Uh, interesting that Colorado has a history of sugar beets. Could you, you couldn't make rum with sugar beets, could you? Not legally, no. Not legally, okay. The definition okay. of rum is, um, is that it's made from sugarcane. That's the one thing about rum. It has to be made from sugar cane. Okay. So you can't make rum from sugar beets, but you can make a spirit from sugar beets. And we did contemplate along the way making a Colorado-based spirit from sugar beets. Unfortunately, most of the sugar beets that are grown in Colorado are GMO, and I have a commitment to having our product be non-GMO, so it just wasn't an option. You recently gave a keynote address at the annual conference of the American Distilling Institute, and you talked about a range of topics, sustainability among them, and diversity. And it makes me wonder if this is um, a business that's dominated by men, or if there are many women in distilling. What's the picture? So when I stood up to make that speech in front of about 1,500 people, a couple of weeks ago, I turned around and I looked out at the group and it was 97% men. Um, So the industry is still very dominated by men. And it was about, you know, 98% white. And so it's still very dominated, um, you know, in terms of ethnicity and race by white folks. And it was, it's just been very surprising to me because it's a very new industry It's very up and coming. Um, There's a lot of movement and change within the craft distilling world. And we live in 2017 where women make up more than 50% of the population and minorities make up, you know, potentially 
35 to 40 percent of our population, uh, maybe more. And so it's just been a surprise to me, and it made me realize that there must be barriers. And the barriers are access to capital, access to experience in the workplace. There aren't formal training programs Mm. widely available for people to get certified. So it's been a mission for me to grow those programs to support people in entering the field. Karen Hoskin, co-owner of Montagna Rum. It's a distillery in Crested Buttes, with rum sales that have expanded to 44 states and seven countries. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thank you.